Welcome back to Books with Bert. We're going to be talking about many books in this podcast, but this is the final episode on my book, The Myth of the Robber Barons. What do historians say about the achievements of American entrepreneurs in the late 1800s? We study history to learn from it. If we can discover what worked and what didn't work, we can use this knowledge wisely to create a better future. Studying the triumph of American industry, for example, is important because it is the story of how the United States became the world's leading economic power. The years when this happened, from 1865 to the early 1900s, saw the U.S. encourage entrepreneurs indirectly by limiting government. Slavery was abolished, and so was the income tax. Federal spending was slashed, and budgets had surpluses almost every year in the late 1800s. In other words, the federal government created more freedom and a stable marketplace in which entrepreneurs could operate. To some extent during the late 1800s, a period historians call the Gilded Age, American politicians learned from the past. They had dabbled in federal subsidies from steamships to transcontinental railroads, and these experiments dismally failed. Politicians then turned to free markets as a better strategy for economic development. The world-dominating achievements of Cornelius Vanderbilt, James J. Hill, and John D. Rockefeller validated America's unprecedented limited government. And when politicians sometimes veered off course later with government interventions for tariffs and high-income taxes, the results again often hindered American economic progress. Free markets worked well. Government intervention usually failed. Why is it then that for so many years, almost all historians have been teaching the opposite lesson? They have made no distinction between political entrepreneurs who tried to succeed through federal aid and market entrepreneurs who avoided subsidies and sought to create better products at lower prices. Indeed, most historians have preached that many, if not all, entrepreneurs were robber barons. They did not enrich the U.S. with their investments. Instead, they bilked the public and corrupted political and economic life in America. Therefore, government intervention in the economy was needed to save the country from these greedy businessmen. This almost seems like insanity. We have over 100 countries in the world. All of them started with few resources and fragile economies. The United States was the same way. Then, in the late 1800s, the U.S. makes its move and rises to the top of the industrial nations of the world. We invent the electrical grid and lead the world in oil refining. We invent movies, the typewriter, the adding machine, computers. And we lead the world in making steel, building railroads, and we established Christian churches and charities to help those in need. All of this in one generation. The U.S. therefore became a magnet for talent in the world in the late 1800s. Tens of millions of immigrants come to America during these years, and many of them become major entrepreneurs in America during the early 1900s. How could historians or anybody else look at such spectacular 
spectacular success, such unprecedented progress, such a skyrocketing standard of living in the United States, and conclude that the entrepreneurs who made all of this possible were robber barons. Robber barons? The catalyst for this negative view of American entrepreneurs was historian Matthew Josephson, who wrote a landmark book entitled The Robber Barons. Josephson, the son of a Jewish banker, grew up in New York and graduated from Columbia University, where he was inspired in the classroom by Charles Beard, America's foremost progressive historian and a man sympathetic to socialism. Matthew Josephson said about Beard, He was nothing less than a spellbinder. And Josephson said Beard's lectures helped guide him on a path to radical politics. During the 1920s, after graduation, Josephson became a journalist, an expatriate to France, and after his return, a part of New York's literary elite. He and Beard reconnected in 1930, and Beard urged Josephson, his student, to write a book denouncing the men who had launched America's industrial power. Oh, those respectable ones, Beard said of American capitalists. Oh, their temples of respectability. How I detest them. How I would love to pull them all down. Happily for Beard, Josephson was handy to do the job for him. Josephson dedicated his book, The Robber Barons, to Charles Beard, the historian most responsible for the book's contents. Josephson began research for his book in 1932, The Nader of the Great Depression. Businessmen were a handy scapegoat for that crisis, and Josephson embraced a Marxist view that the Great Depression was perhaps the last phase in the fall of capitalism and the triumph of communism. In a written interview for Pravda, which was the Soviet newspaper, Josephson said he enjoyed watching, quote, the breakdown of our cult of business success and optimism. Notice that he enjoyed watching the collapse of American society. Josephson added, the freedom of Russia from our cycles of insanity is the strongest argument in the world for the reconstruction of our society in a new form that is as highly centralized as Russia's. Though not a member of the Communist Party, Josephson co-authored an open letter of support for the Communist Party candidates for President of the United States in 1932. We believe, the letter said, that the only effective way to protest against the chaos, the appalling wastefulness, and the indescribable misery inherent in the present economic system is to vote for the communist candidates. Josephson traced the troubled capitalist system of the 1930s back to the entrepreneurs of the late 1800s. Thus, by explaining what he thought was the wasteful, greedy, and corrupt development of steel, oil, and other industries under capitalism, Josephson was explaining to readers why the Great Depression was occurring. Josephson insisted, quote, I am not a complete Marxist, but what I took to heart for my own project 
was Marx's theory of the process of industrial concentration, which underlay my book. Josephson never intended to write an objective view of American economic life in the Gilded Age. He did little research and mainly used secondary sources that supported his Marxist viewpoint. As he had written in the magazine New Republic, quote, Far from shunning propaganda, we must use it more nobly, more skillfully than our predecessors, and speak through it in the local language and slogans, end quote. Interesting, isn't it? Far from shunning propaganda, Josephson says, we must use it more nobly and skillfully than our predecessors. Thus, Josephson wrote the robber barons with dramatic stories, anecdotes, and innuendos that demeaned corporate America and made the case for massive government intervention. When propaganda is the goal, accuracy is the victim. The robber barons is riddled with factual errors. On page 14 alone, Josephson makes at least a dozen errors in his count of Vanderbilt and the steamships. Perhaps more important than all the errors, Josephson missed the distinction between market entrepreneurs, like Vanderbilt, Hill, and Rockefeller, and political entrepreneurs, like Robert Fulton, Henry Villard, and Jay Gould. He lumped them all together. In Josephson's words, I enjoyed writing about my scoundrels. And when his book, The Robber Barons, came out in March 1934, it became the number one best-selling book of nonfiction in the United States for six months. Even more amazing, the author was not in America to promote the book. He left for Russia to explore Stalin's communist experiment. While there, Josephson was a celebrity and was taken on carefully guided tours of Russian steel mills and shoe factories. He attended official dinners and even talked with select Russian writers and artists. Josephson was ecstatic. The Soviet Union, he said, quote, seemed like the hope of the world, the only large nation run by men of reason, end quote. Josephson, under careful Russian supervision, never met any of the hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians who were starving to death at the time under Stalin's brutal collectivization. Nor did Josephson see the Soviet gulags or prisons where thousands of dissenters were forced into hard labor and early deaths. Josephson also never realized that the Soviet factories he saw were often directly copied from Western capitalist factories and were funded by Stalin's confiscatory taxation. Instead, Josephson thought he had stumbled into a worker's paradise, the logical result of central planning and superior leaders. Josephson wrote, Before people pass judgment on Comrade Stalin, they ought to come here and see his works, his opus major in many volumes, with their own eyes. It is very impressive, and few other statesmen in all history have so much to show. In truth, Stalin had almost nothing to show. His model industries, car factories, railroads, and hydroelectric plants, for example, 
were borrowed or built by Americans or Europeans, often with grain confiscated from starving Soviet farmers. Josephson, with his best-selling book, came back to America to glowing reviews and massive sales. For example, historian Alan Nevins called the book The Robber Barons, quote, a tour de force. In the journal, the Virginia Quarterly Review proclaimed it to be, quote, required reading, end quote. Even more important to Josephson, his progressive vision of economic history began infiltrating the writing of high school and college textbooks. The term robber barons became the new label for America's leading entrepreneurs of the late 1800s and beyond. Historian Thomas Brewer, who in 1976 edited the book The Robber Barons, Saints or Sinners, observed that the majority of writers, quote, still adhere to the robber baron interpretation, end quote. Historian David Shy, who wrote a biography of Matthew Josephson, agrees. For well over a generation, the robber barons remained the standard work in its field, historian David Shy said. For many textbook writers, it still is. In the main study guide for the Advanced Placement U.S. History exam for 2015, the writers say, quote, America, from 1877 to 1900, looked to have entered a period of prosperity with a handful of families having amassed unprecedented wealth, but the affluence of the few was built on the poverty of many. End quote. If Josephson's research was so sloppy and his interpretations so biased, how did his book, The Robber Barons, come to prevail in the writing of U.S. history? Some Marxist historians have worked long and hard to guarantee a wide audience for the robber baron view of American history, especially after World War II. First and foremost was the historian Richard Hofstetter. Hofstetter was a longtime professor at Columbia University. He twice won the Pulitzer Prize. He wrote best-selling history books. And he helped train a generation of prominent historians. Yet Hofstetter had joined the Young Communist League in college and later joined the Communist Party. Hofstetter said, My fundamental reason for joining the Communist Party is that I don't like capitalism and want to get rid of it. Although Hofstetter soon quit the Communist Party, he maintained his hostility to capitalism and expressed it in his books, Social Darwinism in American Thought, in his book, The Age of Reform, which won the Pulitzer Prize, and in a popular co-authored textbook entitled, The United States, the History of a Republic. Hofstetter was surpassed in book sales by one of his devoted students, the popular Marxist historian Howard Zinn. Howard Zinn was an active member of the Communist Party during the late 1940s and early 1950s. Zinn was a blunt communist. He said, I want my writing history and my teaching of history to be part of a social struggle. End quote. His best-selling textbook, which is entitled A People's History of the United States, did just that. It has sold over 2 million copies 
and is one of the most publicized and discussed books ever written on U.S. history. Zinn titles his chapter on American industry, quote, Robber Barons and Rebels. He cites Josephson, quotes him, and follows his lead. According to Zinn, the American robber barons achieved economic growth, quote, with the aid of and at the expense of black labor, white labor, Chinese labor, European immigrant labor, female labor, rewarding them differently by race, sex, national origin, and social class in such a way as to create separate levels of oppression, a skillful terracing to stabilize the pyramid of wealth, end quote. Zinn cannot name one industry in which that happened. But he adds, quote, Most of the fortune building was done legally with the collaboration of the government and the courts. In other words, the entrepreneurs of the Gilded Age added little to the economy, exploited all of their workers, and relied on government for their success. In the United States, we sometimes refer to something called American exceptionalism. We are an exceptional nation with an exceptional history because we have faith in God and we have been willing to give our people much freedom to live their lives through their own choices. The United States had no established elite, no ruling class, just a lot of citizens and immigrants who valued freedom very highly. James J. Hill was an immigrant who built the best transcontinental railroad in the United States and did so with no federal subsidy. Andrew Carnegie was another immigrant. He built the largest steel industry in the world from scratch. Henry Ford was not an immigrant, but he came from a poor family in Michigan. His parents died when he was young, yet Henry Ford put America on wheels with his development of the automobile. John D. Rockefeller, well... His parents did not die young like Henry Ford's did, but they separated. His father went on to be a bigamist and live away from this family. But Rockefeller went on to build the biggest oil industry in the world. Not only was it the biggest in the world, it was bigger than all the other oil industries in the world combined. What these and other entrepreneurs had in common was their eagerness to pursue a vision of inventing products to improve lives and make money serving others. The challenge today is to explain this exciting heritage to students so that they too can try to fulfill their vision for their lives. Young America's Foundation is behind this vision and wants to give students this encouragement. Don't let historians blot out the remarkable achievements of American exceptionalism. Two books I would like to recommend if you want to learn more about the ideas that I discuss in this podcast are these two books. These are two good historians. Mary Graybar, her book is called Debunking Howard Zinn. Also, there is Larry Schweikart's book, A Patriot's History of the United States. That is a textbook I can recommend with enthusiasm. And that concludes today's episode of Books with Bert. Thank you all for listening. Be sure to subscribe and rate my podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or any other place where you get podcasts so you don't miss future episodes. If you are a robber baron 
Or if you are a Marxist historian, I will understand if you give a low rating to this podcast. But if you like today's episode and you want to find more content to fill your heart with love for America and for conservative ideas, be sure to check out YAF.org. The conservative movement starts here. Until next time, keep reading. 